Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. Famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright made Phoenix his wintertime playground. But did you know that at one point in time, he designed a brand new state capitol building at Papago Park? I'm joined today to talk about it with Katie O'Connell. Oh, hey, Kayla. And for today's episode, Katie is answering this question. Why didn't the state use Frank Lloyd Wright's plans for its new Capitol building? So what's interesting about that question is that I was expecting some sort of straightforward answer, like maybe it costs too much. But this little slice of history is packed with drama. Lots of shade coming from both sides of the argument. Before I get into that, let me give you a quick primer on who Frank Lloyd Wright was. Wright was born in rural Wisconsin in 1867, and I'm not editorializing when I say he was born into architecture. Just listen to this clip from a 1958 NBC interview he did with Hugh Downs. When did you first decide to make architecture your life work? Well, fortunately, I never had to decide. It was decided for me before I was born. My mother was a teacher and she wanted an architect for a son. Fred Prozillo is the Vice President of Preservation at the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation. Fred said that Wright was inspired by nature from a young age. He said he would work in the fields and, uh, you know, he was a bit of a daydreamer and he'd be working and he'd kind of lose himself in, you know, admiring the wildflowers and, you know, looking at the geometry of the flowers. Wright studied engineering at the nearby University of Wisconsin at Madison, but he never graduated. He was three months shy of his degree when the urge to work in architecture overwhelmed him. He landed in Chicago, where he eventually worked for famed architect Louis Sullivan, who was otherwise known as the father of skyscrapers. After working for Sullivan, Wright set off on his own. He would become an influential member of what's now called the Prairie School of Architecture. He believed that, you know, America needed its, its own architecture. We shouldn't be looking back to Europe and, you know, classical Greek architecture to influence uh, what we built here. Um, we were a really unique and amazing country, uh, you know, wide open spaces. He felt that our architecture should reflect that. Wright pioneered a form of architecture known as organic architecture. It was a departure from the gaudy Victorian designs that permeated culture at the time. In his interview with Downs, Wright used Taliesin, his home in Spring Green, Wisconsin, as an example of this kind of architecture. He said that the house was built into the hill rather than on top of it. That way the hill wasn't lost as a feature. He carried this idea to everything he designed. This is what Wright said about it in 1958. If the thing is successful, the architect's effort, you can't imagine that house anywhere than right where it is. It's a part of its environment, and it graces its environment rather than disgraces it. Wright was diagnosed with pneumonia in 1936. As part of his treatment, doctors advised him to get away from the harsh Wisconsin winters. By 1938, he had purchased a spot for his, quote, winter camp, it's in the foothill of the McDowell Mountains, up in the northeast corner of the valley. He named it Taliesin West, 
and it would serve as his home, his studio, and the school for his apprentices. Here we came to the desert with these astonishing and exciting new forms. In Wisconsin, erosion has softened everything. Out there, everything was sharp. Everything was armed in the desert, and it was an entirely new experience. And there was one project Wright wanted to impart the power of the desert onto, the Arizona State Capitol. Stephanie Mahan is the assistant administrator of the Arizona Capitol Museum. Stephanie said that the historic Capitol building, the one with the recognizable copper dome near Washington Street and 17th Ave, was built when Arizona was still a territory. So they had very modest means, um, and so it wasn't necessarily fit to be a state capital. I think that there was just a lot of overcrowding, um, and that's kind of been an issue since statehood. They've addressed it in phases, so there was a capital addition in 1918, there was one in 1930 with the Department of Agriculture building, and then they came back to it in 1954. Fred told me that there was a study done in the 1950s. It said that by the time 1970 rolled around, the state government would be twice as large. The current building just wouldn't work. What I understand is that they authorized Governor Pyle to basically put a commission together. And so from there, they started to come up with plans. And so a lot of the plans are referred to as the Pyle Plan. Governor Pyle contracted with a group called the Associated State Capital Architects. The group included leading architects from different firms across the valley. But truth be told, we're not 100% sure what the pile plans look like. So our former director wrote this book called Under the Copper Dome. In one part, he says, the plan provided for a completely new building to replace the old capital and its two additions. Unfortunately, there are no drawings or descriptions of the new building that were recommended under Governor Pyle's leadership. We do have a rough idea of what it looked like when Governor Ernest McFarland took over in 1955, but I can't emphasize that word rough enough. The plans for this project were modified almost a hundred times between 1954 and 1957. Anyway, the plans called for a modern concrete tower, ranging anywhere from 12 to 20 stories high. A lot of people at the time compared it to the United Nations headquarters in New York. On each side of the tower was a cube-shaped smaller building, one for the House and one for the Senate. So it would have been, my understanding is that it would have been in front of the historic Capitol building. So it would have covered up the dome that we already have. But then I've also seen plans where there was one where they actually just completely redid the historic Capitol building, added that skyscraper. And it's, there's a lot of different plans. <laughs> now it's time to insert Lloyd Clark into the mix. In early 1957, Clark was a journalist for the afternoon newspaper, the Phoenix Gazette. After the Phoenix Gazette published the designs for the new Capitol buildings, Clark wrote to Wright and asked him for his comments on the design. Uh, and Wright wrote back and, and he said, why comment? The thing is its own comment on the state of culture in Arizona. And that was all he said. Well, I mean, that's kind of saying a lot. Sensing that there was, in fact, more Wright would like to say on the subject, Clark went to Talies and West to interview the architect. During the interview, Wright started just sketching, talking about 
you know, his idea of American architecture and organic architecture, and that, you know, Arizona was such an amazing place. It deserved an amazing capital. Out of Wright's sketches came a plan for the project called The Oasis. I've been working on this episode for a few weeks now, and I've been struggling with how I would describe The Oasis. Imagine a tent of blue glass that's in the shape of a hexagon. That's the roof that covers the one-story building and the plaza around it. Coming up through the roof, there are tall blue spires and trees. There were even water fountains coming out of it. It kind of looks like a futuristic stingray to me, but here's how the professional described it. And it was truly something site-specific. It was designed for Arizona. It was a latticed, low-dome structure, which, you know, underneath this lattice uh, hexagon were gardens and fountains. Uh, and, you know, two houses for the legislature were incorporated into this lattice-shaped dome. There were spires, you know, representing a connection to the great sky, you know, this big sky that we see in Arizona. And Reich didn't just have plans for the exterior of the building. You know, it incorporated all kinds of things for society. There were art galleries there. There were snack <laughs> uh, bars. There were, you know, these gardens. There were barber shops. You know, it was a place that all of society could come see their government in action uh, and, you know, in, in, uh, work together. Kind of, you know, a real example of democracy. On the bottom left-hand corner of the sketch, Wright inscribed Pro Bono Publico for the public good. Up to that point, he had never created a design for the Arizona citizens. And he said, you know what, I should fix that. I should change that because he did love Arizona. He did feel like it was his second home. He wanted the capital to be something representative of the great people and the great land that was here. Clark, the journalist, encouraged Wright to unveil his plans not in the paper, but in a press conference at the Westward Ho. Clark even helped him arrange the press conference, and once Wright unveiled his plan, a six-month-long fight ensued. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the battle for public opinion. On one side of the ring, representing the modernists, we've got the Associated State Capital Architects. And on the other side, representing organic architecture, heavyweight Frank Lloyd Wright. And so, after the press conference at the Westward Ho, the battle began. Frank Lloyd Wright came out swinging. He hit the Associated State Capitol architects with insults about their designs, calling it a telephone pole with a derby on top and two wastebaskets for the legislature. But Wright's design wasn't impervious to criticism. A March 1957 editorial from the Arizona Republic said, quote, the drawings of the Capitol as reproduced in public prints looks like an Arabian Nights fantasy adorned with television and radio antennas. And there were some legal issues with Wright's plans. His plans moved the Capitol building out to Papago Park. But Papago Park is in Tempe, and the Arizona State Constitution mandates that the Capitol is located in Phoenix. 
Plus, there's a clause in the original deed for the land on which the capital is located that it revert to the owner or state of the owner in the case that it's no longer used for the capital. Not to mention that it would geographically split the entities that govern us. I guess a lot of people didn't like the unique design and they also didn't like that it would separate the governor's office, the Supreme Court, and the legislature, um, and then put keep everybody else here and basically, I guess, a remodeled Capitol building. But Wright argued that the location was crucial. Remember the central tenet of organic architecture is that it celebrates the natural beauty of the location. Wright felt that a Capitol building in Papago Park would better represent Arizona's natural beauty than the building's current location. Okay, but in all seriousness, the mudslinging would continue. There were also fights about the issue of cost. By March 1957, the state had spent more than $270,000 on its plans. Wright said that they had nothing to show for it. He also said that his project would cost $5 million, while their project would cost $8 million. However... They argued that Wright was uh, kind of interjecting into the project and trying to take a commission away from them. Um, and this was not as something that the American Institute of Architects um, supported. There's kind of a code of conduct amongst architects that you don't try to take a project away from another architect. The attacks were personal too. Wright had a reputation for being, shall we say, an erratic genius. He was accused of being narcissistic. And his behavior during this spat didn't help. Then I did find another article where he's, you know, he's making his proposal to the legislature and he refers to one of the representatives as my dear boy. Um, so I think kind of to start, they weren't really on great terms. And he's talking about how he's there as a concerned citizen. Um, and he's, you know, make, he's basically doing them a favor by doing this work for them. But kind of sounds like they all felt that he was kind of a, a thorn in their side. The Associated State Capital Architects felt that acutely. An article in the Arizona Republic from March 6, 1957 says, in a statement prepared by Albert B. Spector, attorney for the architectural group, Frank Lloyd Wright, by inference, was called an egocentric individual who believes that only he has been endowed with the touchstone of architectural insight. But at this point in his career, the 87-year-old Wright just didn't care about people who disagreed with him. This section from his NBC interview with Hugh Downs does a pretty good job of illustrating that. The American press and sections of your own profession have not always treated you kindly. Well, I don't see any reason why they should have treated me kindly. I was entirely contrary to everything they believed in. And if I was right, they were wrong. Why should they treat me kindly? And the public got in on the action, too. A group called um, the Wright Capital for Arizona was developed. Uh, and these people kind of campaigned to get Wright's plan implemented. Wright kind of upped the ante and sent letters to high schools around the state and said, students, what do you think? You know, you're unspoiled minds. You are going to inherit 
this capital. What do you think our capital should be? I know a group of high school students armed with thoughts about architecture seems playful, but it was effective to say the least. This is from the Daily Star, May 6, 1957. Um, And they say, the highly conservative sensibilities of the Arizona legislature are being sorely vexed by a barrage of proposals ranging from classic to crackpot for a new state capital. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and then the next line is, and right now, no one would be surprised if school children stormed the well-worn existing capital to demand execution of plans drawn by famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Still, not everyone was on Wright's side. On March 13, 1957, the Arizona Republic published a letter to the editor signed by I Rage. The letter said, quote, As he prepared the utterly monstrous plans recently submitted to the people, Mr. Wright must have been highly amused to think of all of the ooing and aahing that would be done simply because his signature was affixed to them. Frank Lloyd Wright claims to be ahead of his time. Let us hope that the state of Arizona never catches up with him. So the match is up. They've gone round after round, punching each other over the project's location and cost, and it even got personal at times. But after all of that, the winner is... Nobody, honestly, nobody won here. The Phoenix Junior Chamber of Commerce shelved the Associated State Capital Architects' plans in February of 1957. It was suggested at the time that a citizens' committee should be formed to consider other proposals, such as Wright's proposal. But that suggestion made legislators nervous. They were really concerned with the growing public support for Wright. The public was starting to say, well, hey, why don't we put this to a ballot? in January of 58, you know, really delaying the project by a whole year. The legislature and the government did not want that to happen. So they asked the planning commission that was created um, to oversee the project to come up with a compromise. Fred said that the compromise didn't make anybody happy. Rather than build the full plan from the Associated State Capital Architects, the planning commission opted to eliminate the tower and just build the two legislative buildings on either side of the historic Capitol building. The architects that designed the uh, the new Capitol Tower said, look, if you do this, you're going to run out of room uh, for the government about two or three months after this building is constructed. You know, it'll be obsolete uh, as soon as uh, the work is completed. But the legislature passed the compromise. By July 30th, Governor McFarland was breaking ground for the new buildings. And sure enough, the fix was just a temporary one. By the 60s, space was tight again. And this time, the legislature opted to build the tower. The tower plans were different than the ones proposed in 1957, but it's still a concrete tower. So after that um, is when they decided that they would turn the historic Capitol building into a museum and do a restoration. Although Wright's vision for the state Capitol building never came to fruition, part of it exists today. The 125-foot spire that was part of Wright's design is now a monument. 
if you want to see it. It's located on Scottsdale Road and Frank Lloyd Wright Boulevard. Yes, the street is named after him. There are other Wright buildings around town too, like ASU Gamage. He was invited to design that building for the university shortly after the fiasco with the state capitol. And of course, there's Taliesin West, the building and institution most tied with Wright's legacy in the valley. So two of these beams are still the original. Um, so they had to do some patching on it, and then they put in two new beams. Tours are available at Taliesin West year-round. Included in the tour is a stop in his office, where you'll see a framed rendering of the oasis. Added bonus, when you visit, you'll now be stepping into a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Taliesin West is one of eight Frank Lloyd Wright buildings to recently earn that designation. For Stephanie, the fact that Wright's design wasn't chosen for the Capitol isn't the paramount fact. She believes that the Capitol, specifically the Arizona Capitol Museum, is living out Wright's principles. She said she attended a talk a few years ago by Stuart Graff, the president and CEO of the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation. The talk focused on how historic buildings need to continue to have life in them. Um, you know, we don't want to just put up a bunch of fences and tell people they can't touch anything. And um, at the Capitol, we have all these rooms that we reserve. Um, we reserve out the Historic Senate and the Supreme Court to different organizations and nonprofits. Um, and so we have people meeting here and having, I feel like, a, a really important dialogues, lots of civics trainings. We also tour about 20,000 elementary students every year. I feel like. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright maybe didn't appreciate our building, but I think he would appreciate our work and the, you know, the life of the building, uh, despite its design. <laughs> so I felt like that was kind of, <laughs> that's how I'm going to walk away from this. <laughs> hey, it's me, Kayla again. Katie, thank you for that interesting look at maybe a forgotten piece of Frank Lloyd Wright's influence on the Valley. I think a lot of us know how influential he's been here. And, you know, I recently went to Taliesin West for the first time. And it's really interesting to know that he had bigger intentions that didn't come to fruition here for a few reasons. Absolutely. I grew up around his architecture in the Chicagoland area, and it really does make an impression. So hearing these kind of comedic or funny stories, like behind the scenes stories is really interesting. And I definitely suggest that anyone who is interested in this chapter in history heads to Taliesin West and the Arizona Capitol Museum. Well, listeners, if you're loving this show, please let us know. Almost 100 people have given us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and we would love for you to help us reach 100. Rating and reviewing helps other people find the show. If you have more questions about architecture or art in Metro Phoenix, please submit them to us at valley101.azcentral.com. And if you're a new listener, remember you can always go back and listen to old episodes. If you liked this one, you'll probably like the one on why there's no longer a Terminal 1 at Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. As always, thank you for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. See you next week.